Take your Bibles, go to John chapter 19. That's where we're going we're gonna to be this morning. <clears throat> John chapter 19, we will um, we'll be in verse 28. So if you want to get that open there and kind of have your, your finger on the page or, or somehow. Um, we're continuing in our series talking about the sayings of Jesus while he was on the cross. Um, there, there has been a, a very um, noticeable theme as we've walked through this series of, of, of very personal, very personable, and very applicable sayings that Jesus is, is, is laying out there with his dying breaths. Um, this continues that series, and again, it's very applicable and very personable. And one of the things I want to just kind of lay out there for you is this. Um, a lot of times in our uh, preaching and teaching, we want to make sure that we give you some um, very direct and obvious applicational points so that, you know, Monday you can do something different. Um, there's been a couple of messages in this series where it's been, we just want you to think differently. Um, this one is more like that. This one, we, we want you to gaze uh, into the eyes of Christ at this moment of his saying and consider what it means for you as you live uh, your life here in 2018, Carroll County and beyond, what, how does this apply? What does it look like? And what it should do to minister to your hearts, your souls? So that's the, the goal and purpose of that. Before I, before I jump into this, I want to kind of launch into just a little bit of an engaging time. I don't know, parents, when you have little kids, I don't know if you had a specific, I don't know, strategy is not the, the right word. Maybe routine is the best word when it comes to how you put your children to bed. I think for most of us, that routine involves survival more than anything else. Um, but but I'm, I'm just curious if any of you might have had specific routines. Maybe they were different for each child or not. So, so for us, um, there was a lot of different little things, but one of the ones that sticks out in my mind is when Amber was, oh, she was much smaller than she is now. Not that she's huge. That sounded bad. Sorry, Am, love you. It's always good. That went differently, didn't it, huh? I even, I'm like, Amber, are you okay if I mention your name? Now she's like, no. Um, when Amber was tiny, 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 um, her bedtime routine was she'd get ready for bed, she'd say goodnight to everybody, and I would be the last one to tuck her in. And tucking her in looked like this. She would sprint to her bed to get there before I could get there, and she would dive under her covers backwards. So when I would come into her room, up at the pillow would be her feet. And we'd play this little game, you know, because I'm just so silly. Daddy can't find her. Where's Amber? And the routine was this, is I would reach down and grab her ankles, and she'd start giggling. And then I would whip her out, and bam! So it would be like this awesome cartoonish-looking thing. And she'd laugh hilariously, and then, of course, drift right to sleep, because those things calm children right down. (laughs) I don't do that anymore with Amber, in case you're wondering. She does that to me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. R- routines for us when you put your kids to bed usually involve a, a few things like brushing your teeth. and get... <laughs> We have gremlins in the system today. Just embrace them. That's all. Whatever. It's cool. <laughs> At least they weren't talking about my preaching. That would have been like, <laughs> or look at that outfit he's wearing. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of the routine really does, I think for a lot of us, how many of you have got the most insatiably thirsty children ever as soon as it becomes bedtime? 
right? I mean, and now I know um, the children who thirst like that regularly, that's a sign of, of some medical conditions. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the munchkin who's like, I got a plan. I'm thirsty now. They get a drink. And then a couple minutes later is, I have a further plan. Now my belly doesn't feel good. I have another plan. I was thinking maybe we could go to the park tomorrow. I mean, they break out all the excuses, right? We know their excuses. We know the claim for them to be thirsty when they're supposed to be in bed is not an accurate claim. Not real. When you think about the thirst of Jesus as he hung on the cross, it was real. When you think that after the the Last Supper was complete and Jesus and his disciples head to the garden to pray and that for the, that agonizing hour in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed so much it was as if he were sweating great drops of blood. Immediately after that, Judas and the temple guard arresting him and dragging him before Caiaphas, the high priest, where standing before Caiaphas, he's condemned. And then, and then he is brought in the morning, he's brought to Pilate, who gives orders for Jesus to be scourged. Now, for many of us, we don't even understand what to be scourged means. It's not just get a switch off the tree and take a whooping. To be scourged was to be beaten with leather straps that had pieces of glass and bone tied into the end so that when you were whipped, it would tear away the flesh. After being scourged, he was hauled across the city to Herod and again, he's delivered into the, the hands of cruel soldiers who mock him and scourge him a second time. They bring him across the city one more time, back to Pilate, who then delivers him to be crucified. And in that time that he's being delivered to be crucified, as he's walking to the place of crucifixion, he is carrying his own cross through the city streets of Jerusalem under the, the blistering morning heat until he couldn't carry it any longer. When they get to Golgotha, the soldiers drive spikes through his hands and his feet, and they crucify him, and he hangs there bleeding for three hours in the blazing sun until God brings darkness. And for another three hours, God pours out the full cup of his wrath on his son on the cross. And at that point, Jesus is, is near the end. And that brings us to John 19, verse 28, when this is what we read. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. See, in this moment, he's, he's almost lost all of the blood in his body, all of the bodily fluids. There's been no liquid passing through his now parched lips for many hours, and he, he whispers out, I'm thirsty. Consider that picture for, for a few minutes. I mean, there is the creator of the universe, the one who made the oceans, the one who sends the rain, the one who himself is the very fountain of life, and he promised um, living water to anybody who, who asks him. And yet there he is on the cross, saying through his cracked, parched lips, I'm thirsty. We're going to look at that today. 
But let me, let me caution you a little bit. I think that the tendency is as we look at this saying of Christ, I am thirsty, the tendency oftentimes is for people to spiritualize that saying. I am thirsty, so you must thirst for Jesus or be thirsty for righteousness. Sure, that's, that's great other places, but here, just stop it. I mean, t- take it at face value. He's thirsty. So what is he saying when he admits his thirst there on the cross? What do we, what do we hear in this very basic need? We, I think we hear from him saying, I'm thirsty. We hear two different things from Jesus. The first one is this, I understand. Let me, let me walk you through this. As you look at Jesus on the cross and you hear him cry out about being thirsty, we, we see the full humanity of Jesus in that moment. We, we, we cannot sell the humanity of Jesus short. Too many people for too long have done that. They've, 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 they forget the fact that when Jesus was born, he had his diaper changed. He had to learn to walk. He cried. He sweat. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was fully human. He was a man. And you see it, you see it all the way through, through his life. I mean, you think about it in Mark chapter 4. It says he's on the boat with the disciples, and a great storm has come up, and they're looking for him. And where is he? He's asleep. Why? Because he's a man. He's tired. And naps are next to godliness. Jesus did it, just saying. He's fully human. He's compassionate. When, when he was surrounded by crowds, he looked at them and it says he was filled with, with this soul-wrenching compassion for them, whether it be the fact that they needed healing or they were hungry. It talks about how he, in, in John 11, how, how sad he was, how discouraged he was, how filled with sorrow he was when he found his friend Lazarus had died. You go to Luke 4, in Matthew chapter 3, I think, where, where Jesus is led into the wilderness, and he's tempted. See, he's, he's fully human, and in his full humanity, Jesus suffered real flesh and blood, real pain of the cross, real thirst. I mean, you think about the beatings and the lashings and the thorns and the, the spikes and the hours on the, the cross and now the, the thirst. It was real. He is fully human. And in this moment, he cries out, I am thirsty. The soldiers come to his side and, and they provide for him this, this sour wine, this, this wine vinegar, as the NIV uh, um, uses that, that phrase, wine vinegar. What it is, it would be this, this type of, <laughs> wine vinegar is the best way to understand it. I mean, if you've ever had a bottle of red wine vinegar at home, that, that's kind of the idea. Just be diluted with a little bit more water than that would be. And, and this, this wine vinegar, this sour wine, was a soldier's drink of choice while they were on duty. It was cheap. Um, it actually helped. I mean, you didn't want to drink the water at the time or else you'd get sick. And, and so they would do that. And it was, it was, and it was also it had this um, characteristic with it of thirst quenching. So it's like the nastiest flavor of Gatorade ever. I mean, it's, not, it's worse than that lime cucumber stuff that they have, which is real. And one of my kids actually really likes it. Um, but they would use that to help quench the thirst while they were on the job. And so, so when Jesus said, I am thirsty, the soldiers come alongside him with this sour wine, this wine vinegar, and they, they, they place it on his lips. Now, please understand, don't, don't, don't look at the soldiers and be like, oh, they're so nice. No, they're not. Crucifixion was, was uh, created and implemented to, to bring about the most amount of torment possible. By giving Jesus a drink while he was thirsty, what ended up happening was they were prolonging his life so that he could experience more torment. This wasn't an act of kindness. This was to make the game go on a little bit longer. 
In his real humanity, Jesus experienced thirst that you and I have not. It affected him on a most basic level when he says, I'm thirsty. Now, in his humanity, Jesus suffered just like we do. He experienced the same pain, torment, difficulties, just like we do. He suffered temptation just like we do. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one in, who, who in every respect has been tempted like we are yet without sin. Uh, I think it's important that we recognize what that word sympathize means. That's the key word in that verse. We don't have a high priest who, is, who just sits outside and watches what happens to us. No, he's one who can sympathize with us. It's not just an intellectual knowledge of what you're going through. It's, it's to have felt it, to have experienced it. He, he understands where you are. He can sympathize with you. It's, it's not a doctor who's sitting in his, his nice pressed white lab coat as you sit on the paper on the table, and he looks at you and talks about this, this horrendous disease that's eating you up because he knows the facts about it. It's the man who sits across the table from you who has also gone through the same disease saying, I know exactly what you're feeling right now. That's what it means to be able to sympathize with us. See, this high priest that we have, this one who, who goes on our behalf before the throne of God, isn't one who goes with just this intellectual knowledge of what the suffering is that you and I have. He goes fully experiencing everything you and I have experienced. And so knowing that he is at the, the right hand of God, having experienced those things, we're told then by the author of Hebrews, with that in mind, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says this high priest can sympathize with us and what that means, it leads us to the place where we can boldly go into his presence, not flinching, not sheepish, knowing we're not talking to somebody who just doesn't get it. So, so let me, let me <laughs> this has been great, past few weeks, there, there has been, um, this should be true all the time, but in particular the last few weeks, elders, staff, we, we've had some extended periods of, of, of prayer, extended times of prayer, and there's been a couple of times as we've prayed, a few of us have just been praying, and it's just been that moment where it's like, well, we are literally just talking to the God who created everything, and you hear it, it's, it's not formal anymore. It's not marked with these and thous and other lisps that you have to speak in order to talk to God. It's marked with a boldness and a confidence that we have a God who knows us and can relate to us. We can speak with him. Yes, go to him with reverence, but in his presence acknowledge that he's been there already. He knows. Um, I'm about to step into a place where if taken out of context, I will get fired. How's that? All right. Everybody paying attention now? Any of you blog? <laughs> There's a book that um, J.B. Phillips wrote a number of years ago, and it was called Your God is Too Small. It's a fantastic book. Uh, and actually, I would encourage you to read that because I think he's absolutely right. The point that he makes daily, we limit God by our lack of understanding of who he is. Okay? So I would wholly agree with that. That God is too small. Um, however... Let me ask you this question. Is your God too big? Is your God too big? Um, 
I think in some ways we treat him like he is. Now, let me explain. How, how frank is it possible? When, when, when eternity can't contain God, how could he possibly be too good, big? Or, or when your imagination, no matter how big you imagine him to be, it, it reaches the very limits of outer space, you're still barely touching the hem of his garment. How, how could God pass, possibly be too big? Because we daily live like he's too far away to be touched by our heartache. This is too insignificant for me to talk to him about. He can't know what I'm going through. We, we treat him almost like he's, um, like we would treat a billionaire when we're living not just paycheck to paycheck, we're living meal to meal. And we tend to view God as some billionaire who could never understand what it is that we're experiencing every day. Man, don't, don't do that to God. Don't, don't view him as some, some old man who sits on a distant throne and occasionally peers over the top of his bifocals with, with disgust as we struggle with our daily lives, stroking his big, long, gray beard. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the gospel. That's not the God-man who came and suffered in your place, experiencing the exact same thing you experienced. The God-man who came and suffered, the God-man who came to be our substitute, who now is our high priest, who can sympathize with every weakness that we had, is the man who can answer the question when we cry out, do you know what I'm going through here? With a resounding, yes, I do. Charles Spurgeon has a, has a quote, and I love this, and, and he talks about, you know, I, I, you need to remember that the arrow that is, is piercing you lately was already stained with his blood. The, the, the cup which you are made to drink in sorrow, it's very bitter, and yet it already bears the marks of Jesus' lips on the brim. Does he understand? Absolutely. Every pain that you feel, he felt too. So as a result of that, then go boldly with confidence into his presence and cry out, yell, mourn, ask, wrestle, plead with him. Know that as you do those things, he's not in heaven with his arms folded like... In this moment, when we hear from God's mouth, I am thirsty. We realize that God is now accessible to every single one of us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in that access, we have a wonderful gift because God can understand what we're going through. But, but, but that's only the first one. And I think even more than the, the reality that he understands what we're going through, we, we hear a very familiar thing when Jesus says, I am thirsty, and it's this. I am. It's a very, understand what I mean by this. In this moment on the cross, we see the full deity of Jesus Christ. Not only do we see the full humanity of Jesus Christ, we see the full deity of Jesus Christ. You see that throughout the New Testament as well, right? I mean, all of those stories that I mentioned earlier, you actually get to see both the humanity and the deity of Christ. You, you see Jesus on the water when the storm comes and he's tired and he's taking a nap. And then what does he do? He gets up and does what every single one of us wishes we could do in our home when we're trying to nap and it's too noisy. And everything stops. He demonstrates his deity so the wind and the waves even obey him. In his compassion for the people, as he looks at their, their hurts and their hunger, he, his deity is, 
is displayed when he heals the people, when he feeds the crowds. When you see the sadness and the sorrow of his soul when he finds that Lazarus is dead, you see the deity of Jesus in full action when he brings him back to life. When you see that Jesus is being tempted fully human in the wilderness by Satan, you see the very deity of Christ come into play when he rebukes Satan with God's own word. You see the deity of Christ throughout all the fulfillment. I mean, there's, there is, um, somebody actually counted all these, 322 different prophecies in the Old Testament that are directly fulfilled in Jesus through his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. 322 prophecies that are fulfilled. In, in fact, in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, a few more than 20, it's right around 20 prophecies are directly fulfilled. Let me, let me run through a number of them for you. Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who, I ate, my, who ate my bread, he's lifted his heel against me. We saw that fulfilled, didn't we? Judas walking out of the Last Supper, betraying Christ. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, what? 30 pieces of silver. Sound familiar? And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Do you remember what Judas did with the money after he felt guilty about betraying Christ? Yeah, he returned. Tried to get it, give his money back to the high priests, but they refused to take it. So he threw it on the floor of the house of the Lord. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet the Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth as Jesus was before those people who could spare his life. He remained silent. Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. Psalm 22, hundreds of years before Christ, David writes this, They have pierced my hands and my feet. They have divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see the deity of Jesus Christ as all of those prophecies are being fulfilled. And you see one more right here on the cross as he says, I am thirsty. It's interesting. So again, um, looks like the computer just died, so don't worry about it. Yay! <laughs> We're going to turn it off so you don't have to look at the blue screen because it reflects off my head. There we go. <laughs> um, we see the, the deity of Christ throughout all those fulfillments of prophecies, right? And here, look, look again at verse 28. It says later, knowing that everything had been finished. See the specificity that happens here. See how important this is as you follow this. This is very simple. Later, knowing that everything had been finished. You see Christ in his awareness as he's on the cross, right? Knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that scripture would be fulfilled. What was the purpose of Jesus saying, I am thirsty, beside the fact that he was thirsty? It was so that Scripture could be fulfilled. So in the middle of his pain and suffering, as he hangs on the cross, he is, Jesus is so aware of the prophecies, he's so aware of God's word, he's so aware of God's promises that he fulfills this one that's mentioned in Psalm 69, which you can't see, but let me read it to you. <laughs> they gave me poison for food, 
And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. It doesn't say they gave me water to drink. Or they gave me the best wine to drink. It says they gave me sour wine to drink. I mean, it's amazing that in that moment as Jesus hangs on the cross, he's able to keep his focus. Let me, let me be clear. It's amazing that Jesus could keep his focus as he's hanging on the cross. I'm barely keeping my focus knowing there's technological problems. You're barely keeping your focus wondering what's going on. But there Jesus is suffering like you and I have never suffered before, nor will we ever suffer, hanging on the cross with his hands and his feet nailed to beams of wood and still in his deity, in his divinity, he is able to for a moment say, so that scripture could be fulfilled, I'm thirsty. Why does it even matter? Why does it even matter? couple of reasons. Um, Andy mentioned it, um, kind of carrying us through the service this morning. What it does is it gives us a picture of Jesus and it reminds us Jesus is who he said he was. And then most basically, when you look at all of the fulfilled prophecies that point to Christ, uh, Max Licato says it's, it's just another plank uh, on the already sure bridge to, to walk across in our ability to trust God. It's just one more thing. You didn't need one more, but, but it's one more just to remind you that, that, that God can be trusted. Th- think about God's promises and the promises that he gives and the prophecies that he gives and the fact that there is nothing that exists externally, there's nothing that exists internally that's going to keep him from keeping his word. That is not true about you or I. You understand that, right? There are so many external things that keep us from keeping promises. Uh, so I shared the story about the big Hershey Park debacle with my family years ago. We had fully intended on going to Hershey Park. That was our big Christmas gift to them, and then we never took them. And, and now two of them haven't been, but two of them have because we fulfilled half our promise. But I've got a whole list of reasons why we didn't go during that period of time, but it doesn't matter. The reality is I will not be able to keep my word all the time because of external circumstances. I will not be able to keep my word all the time because of internal circumstances. The most basic one is this. I'm a rotten sinner. I hope that doesn't shock any of you. certainly doesn't shock my family. They know. And so, but when we look at what happens with God, God will never fail to keep his promises. He keeps every promise. You know why? Because God is true. Because God is trustworthy. Because God is omnipotent. So there's nothing that can keep him from keeping his word. And here, what's amazing is this isn't even like a hugely significant prophecy. I mean, let's be honest. This isn't one. (laughs) This is probably not a prophecy that if this one gets missed, you're not going to be like, oh, that's it. I'm not going to believe in Jesus anymore. They didn't give him sour wine. They gave him sweet wine. I'm out. But God's level of promise keeping is down to the very intricate details will be kept in absolute fulfillment. It's a reminder as we look at this prophecy being fulfilled that every word of God, every promise of God will come to pass. And it's, a, it's so simple, but it's packed with, with significance. So let me, let, me, let me close with this. I know that makes people nervous when pastors say, let me close with this. That usually means another 20 minutes left, but see what happens. <laughs> When you hear this and understand that we're seeing the very humanity of, of, of Christ, and we're seeing the very deity of Christ, what you need to understand is this. It's another picture of the fact that Jesus 
is welcoming those of you who are lost in your sin. Jesus is welcoming those of you who wonder if God will have anything to do with you. You know why? Every single one of us wonders that sometimes. Every single one of us, there's a moment in our lives or many moments in our lives or perhaps it's just moment in the week where we look to the heavens and say, man, why would you even waste your time with me? And what we need to understand is that because God is in the business of keeping every one of his promises, we have to remember that when, when Jesus speaks in John 5 and says, listen, I am telling you the truth, the one who, who hears my message, the one who believes in the one who has sent me, he will have eternal life and he'll not be condemned because he has crossed over from death to life. See, that's the very promise of God for you. The very promise of God in John 1, it says that anybody who, who receives him, he's given the right to become God's children. It's the very promise of God. The very promise of God is, is that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. The very promise of God is that since we've been declared righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. The very promise of God, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Those are all the very promises of God. And what God is saying is you as, as, as <laughs> sinners are still welcome to come to me. Oh, but I, I don't feel like I deserve it. Here's the easy answer. You don't. Stop thinking you've done something to deserve access to God. You have done nothing deserving of access. You've done a lot of things to keep you out of the party. But the very promise of God is that you stand in his presence, not because of how you feel, not because of all the wonderful deeds you've done. Your basis for a right relationship with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your basis of being accepted and loved by God and even liked by God and enjoyed by God is the fact that you take him at his word and you lean on his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue your soul from sin. That's what matters. That's the promises of God. So he is welcoming you into his arms. He is welcoming those of you who are crying out in agony even now. Because he understands. When you cry out, you're not crying out to some impotent historical Jesus. No, you're crying out to a savior, to a rock, to one who's been there, who hears you, who gets it, and who's able to do something about it. Please, 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 don't hear me saying that when you cry out to him, he's going to remove all of your hurt. That is not a promise of God. Don't hear me say when you cry out to God, he's going to fill your bank accounts. That is not a promise of God. If it was, I'd be wearing a different shirt right now. Much fancier. <laughs> in the midst of your heartache. Those moments you can't tell up from down, you cry out to Jesus to enjoy his presence and his peace through that. Here's the awesome thing. The God of the gospel cares for every human need because he's shared in every human need. The God of the gospel doesn't respond to your heartfelt cries of pain with a, oh, just cheer up, rub some dirt on it, keep your head up, oh, it's going to be over soon, you'll be fine. Now, the God of the gospel 
shared the pain and the suffering that you're experiencing even now. So what are we supposed to do? Remember, I wanted you to to look Jesus eyeball to eyeball. I wanted you to see him differently. And this this is how I would posture it for you. Fall on your faces and embrace the access that you have to God as a result of Jesus Christ paving the way for you. Embrace the access that is yours to come into God's presence. But don't just embrace the access that you have. Use it to access the embrace that's yours because he understands. He feels your heartache. He feels your pain. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May we run, not walk, to that holy throne, where the one who's experienced everything we experience sits waiting to embrace us. Let's pray together, can we? Lord, there's, um, there are moments in each of our lives where we just don't think you understand. And that's to our shame because that just means we don't understand you. So Lord, I ask that you would minister to hurting hearts right now that you would remind each and every one of us that you're not only a God who gets it and understands and feels it, but you're a God who can do something about it. And you may not choose to change the circumstance we find ourselves in. You may not choose to bring about wonderful revival. You may just choose to walk with us through that process. Lord, I ask that we would love you enough that that would be more than enough for us. Lord, I pray that each one of us would see you differently and see that you're a God who loves us and cares for us and longs for us. Lord, I know that you love every person in this room far more than I do. I know that you sent your son to die for for them. Lord, I pray if somebody's sitting here questioning that, that the Spirit would draw them and that they would simply understand that you're a God who came not to condemn the world, but that the world through Jesus Christ would be saved. God, I ask that you would move among us as we close our service, that you would do what you need to do, what you long to do in each of our hearts. May we run to you and find the forgiveness of sins. In the name of the one who came for us, who knows us, who loves us, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Love you.